That's nice. Could you all just do that every morning when I get up? And that'd, that'd be beautiful. I, I would go into the day with a, a wonderful perspective. Wow. I love this church. I really do. I've grown to love this church through the years. I've gotten to know Todd through Forest Homes Ministry for years. And, you know, my son is a basketball player these days, and I'm always trying to teach him the triple threat that when he's got the ball, he needs to be ready to shoot or drive or pass at any moment. And in ministry, it's kind of rare that people have the triple threat, that they're shepherds, that they're leaders, and they're preachers. Those kind of require three different personality types almost. And I always marvel at the way Todd is so gifted at all three of those. And I'm thankful for that, and I'm thankful for this church. I grew up in Trinity Evangelical Free Church of Woodbridge, Connecticut, not here, but... And so every time I come here, I feel like, wow, I, I feel like I'm a little kid again at Trinity EV Free. And here we are. I, I, I just love this church. What an amazing privilege to be God's people, to be gathered like this. I, I love it every time I gather with God's people like this because over the years, I've seen more and more evidence of the reality as when we gather like this, every one of you sitting here is, I don't know if you're aware of it, you're demonstrating humility. Your very presence here says, I'm not okay at home by myself. I need God's people and I need to gather like this and sit under the preaching of the word and worship God together and get my soul revived. I'm not okay all by myself. It's a demonstration of humility. I don't know if you're conscious of that, but just simply being here says, I need other people. I need the people of God. We're created for one another. We're created for God, but we're created for God together. And I just love that. And, and I hate the way I've seen in the past year and a half so much difficulty and division. I think Satan has had a field day in some ways. I really think in my life, I'm not quite sure what God's up to about over half the time. Uh, but, but when I'm not sure what God's up to, what I always can safely say is one thing I know is he wants to teach me humility. He wants me to teach me to trust him more than I trust myself. And we always know that's what's going on. And through the whole pandemic situation, if there's one thing I'm sure of, it's that God wanted us to learn humility through all of that. But I'm not sure that's exactly what's been happening. It's been fascinating just as a pastor and as a professor at Biola to see the way Satan has used four issues these days, issues of sexuality, issues of race, issues of politics, and issues of pandemic to sow division among God's people. It's just been amazing to see those four issues, which all are very important issues. Christians should have a worldview that cares about the way we handle pandemics and relate to the government as a church and in the way we view sexuality and the way we view race and the way we view politics. I mean, those things are important issues, but it's been incredible to see how much division has happened. And I think one of the problems has been we've talked about and thought about and processed these four issues because of isolation from the pandemic protocols, primarily through social media which may be the worst place to work through complex, difficult issues. 
right? It's been amazing to see how feelings have been hurt and relationships have been challenged. And, and I think Satan has been so happy with the way these issues have brought about all kinds of difficulty in the church. We, we have a very healthy church where I'm one of the pastors, and I'm very grateful for our people. But I must tell you, I've, I've been stunned at the way these issues have, have divided us. Just the issue of masks. We've had people leave our church because we were too liberal with masks. We've had people leave our church because they thought we were too conservative with masks. We've had people become part of our church in the last year because we were more liberal than their church was with masks. And we've had people join our church in the past year because our church was more conservative than their church was with masks. Masks, yeah. I just, it's just been amazing. And I'm not saying there aren't important issues related to things like masks and these things. I'm not minimizing that Christians should have a worldview that affects everything from your view of government protocols and politics and sexuality right down to your entertainment choices. I, I'm not saying a worldview shouldn't invade every area of our lives, but we are seeking unity in truth. We don't compromise truth, but we're always seeking unity in truth, and there's an important balance between those two. And what I want us to think about this morning is unity in truth grounded in our identity, and our mission, who we are and what we're called to. If we have a strong sense of our identity from God's perspective and our mission, our calling from God's perspective, we will be a people unified in truth. Jesus prayed for us. Jesus prayed for us that we would have a unity that shows the world the kind of unity that's always gone on in God himself. You couldn't have a better name for a church than Trinity. You really couldn't, especially in a day when everybody's trying to be so cool and relevant. Hume Lake had a, had a skit where this really cool, trendy pastor changed the name of his church about every eight months to be more relevant and he would tattoo it on his arm, and he had a whole line of churches that were crossed out because it, it was Scar and Edge and, and all these names. But Trinity, how does it get better than Trinity, the core of God's being, right? It's just beautiful. But God, Jesus prays that we would have a kind of unity in the midst of our wonderful distinctions that mirrors who God is. And that it would become a backdrop, he prays, so that people would know who he is, who the Father is, who the Spirit is, through the way we're unified with all of our wonderful distinctions. If we know who we are and if we know what we're called to, there won't be division among God's people. Sometimes division is something that, that is required when it's, it's doctrinal issues that, that are gospel issues, that are character of God issues, that are life of the church in devastating way issues. But it's amazing how in a year of all these judgment calls about an election and a pandemic and issues of sexuality and, and issues of, of politics and all these things, there's so many judgment calls we have to make. 
And we need to know the difference between the things that define us and the things that, that may not even be at the core of our lives, but we need to plant flags on and draw lines on because the health of the church and the glory of Christ is at stake. But then the things that are judgment calls. You know, we just finished preaching through 1 Corinthians right before the pandemic struck. And one of the main things we camped on was disputable matters relative to core gospel issues and how important it is to have a, dis a, a discernment about what those things are and the difference between those things. And, and it, it was amazing when the pandemic hit, we thought, wow, I'm not sure the sermon really settled in the way it needed to when there were so many different perspectives on things. I have a friend who was raised in a very racist family in a very racist community. And if then he went off to college, he was a Division I football player, and he got recruited, recruited to play football, and he played at East Carolina State. And he, growing up, he had no black friends. He was a white guy. He had no black friends, and he, he hated white people. He had a very, uh, black people. He had a very low view of them. And, and his first day as an East Carolina State pirate, his roommate was a black guy. And he and this roommate were right next to each other on the defensive line for East Carolina State. So they were roommates, and they were, were teammates, and not only teammates, but they were both linemen, and they were right next to each other on the line. And my friend Jeff said it took two weeks, just two weeks, to really start to undo 18 years of a racist mentality. Why? Because when you're on a defensive line with a guy next to you and your health and success completely depend on him doing his job, it doesn't matter what color he is. Your big question is, is he going to do his job? Does he identify with you as a teammate? Because now they were pirates and they were teammates and they had to depend on each other. And see, that common identity and that common mission is vital for us. So I want to go to a passage. If you have your Bible, please open to 1 Peter chapter 2. I want to go to a passage that, that as powerfully defines our identity and our mission as you're going to find. Peter is laying out the identity of Christ, who Jesus is. And then... Living, laying out an identity in Christ that we all find by faith in him. And then he lays out the practical outworking of that, the ramifications for that. And here's what he says in 1 Peter 2. Let's just pick it up. I want to back up all the way to verse 4, put it in context, and then camp on verses 9 and 10. Listen to what Peter says to this church. Let's hear from the Lord through the Apostle Peter in the very same way the original hearers did. Help us, Lord, hear from you. 1 Peter 2.4. As you come to him, Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house 
to be a holy priesthood. Did you catch that? This stone, this cornerstone that is Jesus, the foundation that both gives the parameters of and the basis for, the foundation for, the necessary strength to build this house, it's Jesus. And notice it's rejected by men. We just need to be a people who are okay with being hated along with the cornerstone. For a long time, Christians in this culture have enjoyed acceptance and affirmation and approval. I heard someone say a while ago that when I was a kid, being a good Christian could get you a job. Today, it can cost you a job. Things have changed. Things have changed. And are we okay with being hated even? The spies rejected as the Savior was. Jesus said, they hated me, they'll hate you. And we don't want to give ourselves permission to be jerks when people hate us. Sometimes people say, I'm suffering for Christ's sake. No, you're suffering because you're a jerk. No, and so <laughs> there's a difference, right? There's a significant difference. And, and we don't want to give ourselves permission to be idiots, but we do want to recognize that following Jesus faithfully in an increasingly hostile culture will incur scorn. And, and we just need to know that's part of the deal. And we're okay with that. So we come to him, our living stone, and he builds us into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, Chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. He's quoting Isaiah here, this ancient prophet, and saying that cornerstone that God builds this house on is Jesus. And when you get rightly related to him, when you turn from your sin in repentance and trust him in saving faith, you become part of this house he's building, this spiritual house. And this is acceptable to God. You're accepted by God through Christ. And he's precious in God's sight, even though he's rejected by the world. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And then here is where I want to focus. Listen to this description. If you're someone who's trusted Jesus, if you're a new creature in Christ, just bask in this description of who you are, of who we are. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you hear this description of who we are? We're the people of God who've been brought out of our previous darkness that we couldn't do anything about without God intervening the way he miraculously and powerfully does. And he pulls us out of the darkness, the pit we and our sin had gotten ourselves into. And he brings us into his marvelous light, which is his very presence, a relationship with him. 
through Jesus, the precious promised cornerstone. That's who we are, people. Let's just bask in this. Let's appreciate this. And then the way we live flows out of who we are and what we're called to as his people. We are, the first thing, a chosen race. This is fascinating. There's the human race made in God's image, but that image is terribly marred. The purpose for which we are created is for God himself, for relationship with him, to honor him with our lives. But we have terribly rebelled against him. We've sinned against him. We've gone our own way. That's what the Bible says, every one of us. But in Christ, he makes a new race of people. Oh, we're still part of the human race. We have that collective identification as well. But now we have been brought into a new identity as a chosen race. You know, isn't it fascinating that race is such a major issue today? And this should have such an influence on the way we view race and racial issues. As part of God's wonderful creative design in creating people that look different and have different cultures and experiences in, in these realities and, and different features that we can uh, celebrate and delight in. But we recognize we're all part of the human race, but then in Christ, we are part of a chosen race. A chosen race, the chosen people. The nation of Israel had always been a vehicle to create a chosen race that is bringing in representatives from every other kind of race on the earth. If you're a Christian, you're part of a chosen race, which means I have infinitely more in common with a woman who's 20 in Uganda right now than I do with another white 57-year-old man who's an American, my socioeconomic status. We have the same hobbies, the same interests, the same sports teams we like. All those things pale in comparison in defining me and unifying me to people. It's Jesus that is the centerpiece in our unity. He's the one who defines us now. In all the demographic, socioeconomic, generational divisions we so often have, they go away. And now our identity is found in Christ. And you and I may be completely different from a worldly perspective, but if we are found in Christ, we are part of the same chosen race, and we have everything in common that leads to a kind of unity that should make the world scratch its head and say, how do you two even know each other, never mind call each other brother and sister? And it doesn't mean we easily like each other or easily move to brotherly affection as the Bible commands for us to have. But if we start with this common identification, we'll end up there if we work it out in our lives. So we're a chosen race. We're a royal priesthood. So there's a king here. I'm so sick of hearing about Harry and Meghan. I'm sorry. I just... If I never hear anything about them again, I'm, I wish well on them. Don't get me wrong. But goodness, why? Look, the American psyche is anti-royal, right? 
the whole thing started getting away from all that. We can't leave it behind, can we? We just got, what's Harry, what are Harry and Meghan saying to Oprah this week? So, uh, but if, if we're biblical, though, we've got to have a deep appreciation for royalty because we serve a king and we're subjects of his kingdom. So we're part of royalty. We're, we're, we're part of a royal family, and we're subjects under the king, and we represent his kingdom. But this is a fascinating combination. We're a royal priesthood. So we get two images of the Messiah here, of king and priest. The other one is prophet. We, we won't get that one to that one today, but prophet, priest, and kingly ministry is what the Messiah is all about. And here we have two of them brought together because we serve the Messiah, the chosen, anointed agent of God to bring his kingdom, who is the king and the priest. We then are conferred this amazing privilege of representing him as our king and as the great high priest, as, as little representations of his royal kingdom and his priestly ministry. You know, a prophet, you know, if, the, if God is here and the people of God are here, a prophet stands in front of people and represents God before people. A priest does this. He represents people before God. And he says, come on, let's go into the very presence of God. I have access through the blood of the Lamb. Come with me. That's what priests do. That's what the worship team was beautifully doing for us. They were saying, come on, let's, let's worship God together. Let's go into the presence of God. That's what priests do. So we're not just a chosen race. We're a royal priesthood representing our king and with the amazing privilege of ushering people in the presence of God. Do you know how strange this must have sounded to, to Jewish ears? Because think about it. The priests in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, were a very select group. Let's try this. Who wants to be a priest? Let's just say we all do. So raise your hands if you want to be a priest. Raise your hands. Now let me read just a few of the requirements. And, and if one of these doesn't apply to you, you've got to put your hand down. You ready? We won't even talk about good character. Well, that's, that's hard to figure out right in the moment. Um, we won't even talk about the idea of never unclean in the priestly service. But you must have priestly clothes. Uh, you have to be male. So the women, sorry, um, no bald patches. Half the guys are done now. Um, no cuts on you. I'm finished. I did all this yard work at my mother's house in Connecticut this past week, and I got cuts all over me. I'm out. Um, no loose hair or torn clothing. No blemishes, no deformities. So my mutated fingers won't, won't work. No deformities or injuries or diseases. You have to be Jewish. And you have to be from the tribe of Aaron. How are we doing? None of us qualify, do we? No. But even in this context, listen to what God says in Exodus 19. If you'll obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people. For all the earth is mine. And listen. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. A holy nation. Imagine how it sounded to you. You knew a priest had to fit all these qualifications, and so few people ever got to be priests. But he said, the day's coming when I'll have an entire kingdom 
made up of entirely priests. All my people will be priests. So when Peter says, like he does twice in this chapter, right, way back in verse 5, spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. And then when he says you're a royal priesthood, he's saying that day has come. That day Moses said in Exodus 19 would come, it's come, and it's come in Christ, the cornerstone. And we're priests, so we not only have this identity as his subjects, as royalty, we have this identity as priests. Do you realize what a privilege that is? An awesome privilege to be priests, able to take initiative prayerfully, depending on the Spirit, and actually being used by God to help usher other people into his presence. It's an awesome thing. It's called the priesthood of all believers. And first, it's a corporate idea. But it means we are the main agents, the representations of God and his gospel in the world to help people who don't know the Savior come to know the Savior and people who know the Savior come to greater maturity in him. That's what we're called to. So much that Paul says things like this to the Galatians. He takes his priestly ministry so seriously. He says, I'm like a woman in childbirth waiting for you to come to maturity in Christ. No, I've never given birth. But I'm told you want it over with really fast. You don't want it to linger. Ladies, am I right who have given birth? Yes. And Paul uses that metaphor to say that's how deeply... I'm living for you to come to maturity in Christ. And we have that privilege. That's, that's our calling. That's our identity. Priest to our God. I think it's a tragic turn of terminology in the history of the church that priests have been used, that, that word has been used for a select few in the church because we are priests, all of us, to our God. And what else are we? We're a holy nation. This is fascinating, too. I love the United States. I love being a citizen of the United States. We adopted our children from, from uh, China and Taiwan. And my son Isaac's back there, I think. Maybe he went to buy some snacks or something. I don't know. But um, he came from China. And I, I wept when, when, because when you adopt a child internationally, the paperwork's all done, the citizenship, you've, you've done all this massive amount of work. And do you know, the moment they become citizens is when those tires of the airplane hit the ground at LAX. My kids, we landed safely and my kids looked over and tears are streaming down my face. And they said, Dad, what's wrong? And I said, nothing's wrong. You just became a citizen of the United States. It was just beautiful. But do you know, as much as I love my citizenship as a Christian, my citizenship as a, as a part of God's holy nation, it so surpasses my citizenship as an American. That's eternal. That, that lasts forever. That's what defines me. See, I'm a world Christian. I'm not just an American Christian. I'm a world Christian. And I want to be like the Tweeties who can go to another country on another continent and become home with the people of God there, seeking to reach the people of God there. You know, as much as I love this country, it's a fly-by-night compared to the church. It's going to come and go like every other nation, except for the holy nation that is the people of God. That's who we are. 
That's where our ultimate citizenship is. And it's a set-apart holy nation. Identified distinctly from geopolitical nations. It's a spiritual house that God has built that we're a part of now. It's just this incredible privilege to be part of this large body of people united by a common descent, a common history, a common culture, a common language from the scriptures. That's who we are now, set apart and pure. That's what holy means because that's what our king is like. It's like that burning bush that doesn't consume the bush but actually makes the bush and the ground around it holy. You'd think bye-bye bush when it catches on fire before Moses. But no, the bush and the ground around it takes on the holiness quality of God and Moses needs to take off his sandals because he's on holy ground. And it's a good thing God makes us his holy people because he says without holiness no one will see the Lord. And in Christ, the Holy One of God, we become holy in his sight, the distinct ones. The, the saints of God, the, the holy ones of God, another primary title for God's people were the hagioi. You are a hagios, a, a, a saint of God. We are saints set apart, holy ones, both in our calling and in our morality, our purity. That's true of who we are. We're saints and holy ones of God. What an awesome privilege that God has created for us to be a part of. And we're his special possession. Do, do you see what it says next? We're, we're his holy people. We're his holy nation. And we are a people belonging to God. That's who we are. A people belonging to God. His own possession. We're his. We're not just citizens and subjects of his nation. We're his children and his bride. And as my friend Bobby Scott, a dear friend and pastor at a church in Southgate says, we have been redeemed from every conceivable slave market of sin in him. We're, a ch we're children of God. You didn't earn it. You didn't prove it. You didn't demonstrate it. You didn't make yourself worthy of it. You have been crucified with Christ by faith, and it's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. And now, as Paul says about himself, we say about ourselves, in the life I live in the body, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And now our Christian lives of pursuing daily holiness is what Paul calls living up to what we've already attained. We've already attained this in him. We don't earn it, we don't prove it, we live up to what we've already attained. I think Satan tells two basic lies. One, to non-Christians he says, you're fine. You don't need a savior. And when we say, you're a liar, I do, and that Savior's Jesus, he flips his tactics and he starts saying, you're not fine. He's the accuser of the brethren, right? Come on. You think you're forgiven of all your sins? Okay, maybe Jesus died for most of them. But all of them? That thing back in high school? That time back in college? That, that thing you did yesterday? No, 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 no. You got to earn a little of it off. Come on. If you think Jesus died for 98% of your sins, Satan wins. He does. When Jesus said it's finished, he really meant it. Can we revel in this? Can we be in awe of this? We're forgiven. We're saints. We're priests. We're part of his holy nation. Oh, this is just the most awesome identity. And, and what happens is we're overtaken by this. I think you can define a Christian as someone who's beheld the glory of God in the face of Christ and is never the same. 
Because you now see yourself for who you are in your sin and now who you are in Christ. And you're never the same. You're a different person now. You identify with the people of God in ways you radically do and never had before. And that's who we are now. And, and to not lose our first love, to be in awe of forgiveness. You know, I think every Christian should have jaw problems. Like TM, we should have perpetual TMJ. Why? Because we should all be walking around like this all the time. People say, what's wrong with you? I'm forgiven. All I had coming was hell. And now I've got an eternal glorious destiny with God. I'm forgiven. Ah, I got to go to the doctor. Yeah, we should have jaw problems all the time. You know that scene in the road to Emmaus where Jesus is walking with his disciples and they're discouraged, they're confused. It's after his resurrection. He keeps them from seeing who he is. And then he's at the table at the inn where they're staying, and he breaks some bread, and maybe they saw the scars in his hands. Maybe they remembered him breaking bread at the Last Supper, but most certainly because the Spirit was working, they realized it's Jesus, the risen Savior of the world, and their lives are forever changed. Listen to this, look at this painting by Caravaggio of this moment uh, at, at, on the road to Emmaus. You see the two disciples who've just realized it's the Savior, He's risen from the dead. He saved the world. Look, they're on the edge of their seats. One's beginning to worship. One's beginning to get up. They're just enthralled by the realization that Jesus is the Savior. And then there's the innkeeper. Caravaggio very intentionally painted the innkeeper as someone who was curious and sort of passively interested in this realization these other men were having. And I think the innkeeper is most people in our society and even a lot of people in the church. Yeah, they're cool with Jesus, like that old Doobie Brothers song, Jesus is just all right with me, you know. They're not on the edge of their seats. They're not like my wife, Donna, who I knew before she was a Christian. And I knew her when she came to Christ at 19. And Donna, if you ask her, if you ask her how she became a Christian, she, she won't be 20 seconds into the story without tearing up and remembering how God saved her. She's not the innkeeper. She's one of the disciples here who just has never gotten over how much he's been forgiven. And if, if the gospels gripped our hearts like this, we won't fall into petty divisions. We won't fall into judgment call evaluation that, that just rips us apart. We'll grab a hold of our identity and remember who we are in Christ and say to Satan, shut up. When he reminds us of all our sin, some of which is true, some of which isn't that he throws at us. And we're able to say, shut up. I know my sin is great, but Jesus is greater still. And he's taking it all away, and we can rest in that. And then get to our primary calling as those who realize we've been taken out of darkness and brought into marvelous light. And what is that calling? Look what it is. Here's what it is. To proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Oh, Christians should be known as united people and grateful people and hopeful people and joyful people and God-proclaiming people. 
because he brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what we're called to, our proclamation of his greatness, just like we've been doing collectively this morning. The proclamation of God's greatness, his goodness, we're proclaimers so that, that's the result, not so we could just have this identity, so that this identity could lead to proclamation and evangelism and missions and reaching to the world this message of life and light that has been brought to us in our dark sin-sick souls. Our identity and our unity in this context becomes then the foundational apologetic out of which our whole lives are lived and the advance of the gospel lives on. I love the, 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 the picture that Todd has in his office. I, I think of it often. I'm convicted by it of, of people drowning off the side of a ship, and, and most of the people on the ship just ignoring the drowning people and just a few throwing life rafts and saving them, the proclaimers of the greatness of this God who saved us. And listen to how Jesus describes the context of this in John 17. I do not ask for these only, but also of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Is that what we're known for? Is that the kind of unity we have as God's people? The word that's just been coming to mind for the last year and a half over and over again for me in all these debates and discussions and differences and divisions is graceless. I've seen so much gracelessness, lobbing grenades on Twitter back and forth on all these things, and we are the people of grace. We're the people who've been shown grace and never gotten over it. Did you hear what Jesus said? That they may be one as we are one so that the world may know what we're like and that you sent me. Now that is an identity and a mission worth living for. Heavenly Father, help us to get clarity and biblical discernment and understanding from you. Lord, I feel my heart and my mind tugged in constantly different directions. I've gone so inward in this past year. I've felt irritability and anger and frustration and impatience like I never have before. You'd think I'd be past these things after walking with all these years, but Lord, we're a frail people and we're fallen people. And so we pray that you would do a work in our lives, grounding our understanding of who you are and who we are in you that leads to a kind of grace and confidence and love and humility and boldness and joy and gratitude that will become the context from which the gospel advances in our lives as we proclaim the greatness of you who brought us out of darkness and in a marvelous light. And we pray these things in the name of the one who's the precious promised cornerstone. Amen.